So I was born in Columbus, Ohio. Any Buckeye fans in the house? We'll pray for you, that's why I asked. <laughs> born in Columbus, Ohio, and then when I was very young, was it three weeks or three months? Three months, we moved from Columbus to Michigan. Any Michigan fans in the house? We'll pray for you even harder. That's why I asked. We moved to Grand Rapids area. We're there for about four years, and then we moved from Grand Rapids to Stevensville, Michigan, which is not far from here, near St. Joe, Benton Harbor. And then from Michigan, we moved to uh, around Nashville, Tennessee, Murfreesboro, the home of MTSU. Any fans of Middle Tennessee State University? <laughs> a little more far afield, I know. And then uh, after a year and a half in Tennessee, we end up here in the South Bend area. Now, each one of those moves meant new friends, new school, and it also meant new church, obviously. Uh, we were like a church family. Mom and dad were always super involved. It was a big value for our family. And so every time you move, you've got to find a new church. And I would say what I recall of going from Grand Rapids, Michigan to Stevensville, Michigan, while we found a new church, it didn't mean like a, a, a huge leap in church culture for us. But then we moved to the south and got ourselves some southern religion. And we ended up at a Baptist church, a southern Baptist church. And I mean a southern, southern Baptist church. And I remember like at that point, I'm fourth grade, fifth grade, and you know, kids that age, you're starting to ask questions about everything around you. You're seeing things, you're exploring things, you're trying to put the pieces together. And I think it was that move, because if I, I was old enough to observe and ask some questions, and because the leap was bigger culturally from Michigan church to Tennessee church, I remember asking my parents, hey, how do we decide what church to go to? Because there's a lot of churches out there, like, do we just pick one? How do we decide what church to go to? And I remember the answer I heard was, well, we try to find the church that follows the Bible. And right then, I remember this book right here, it, it became very curious to me. I was like, oh, this book, apparently this book, like, that matters for our family. It affects some decisions that we make. And I started being really curious about this book. Now, I don't know about your childhood. Maybe it was uh, filled with this book. Maybe it was like me going to summer camp. We do a thing called sword drills, which if you're not from the particular little pocket of Christian culture that I'm from, might sound really weird to you, but it's like a speed test to see who can rifle through the Bible to find the verse first and stand up and read it, and then you give you candy or whatever, which is both either really beautiful or a little cult-like. I'm not sure. It depends on where you're coming from probably, right? So, like, big part of my life. And then I, uh, I'm in high school and I'm reading this book and I'm, and I'm asking other questions about this book. And then I go to college where for a minute, I'm a biblical studies major because I had like seven majors and they never lasted more than a minute. But there was a minute there where I was deep in the Greek and the Hebrew in this book too. And then I go to grad school and all of grad school is studying this book with really smart people, years and years of lots and lots of study on this book. And through all of that, I've been through like love for this book and confusion with this book and anger at this book and I'm done with this book and no, I think I need to come back to this book and this book seems really important in a world where otherwise it's just sort of the idea of the moment and I need something to anchor me and other moments where this book seems primitive and I've been through all of that round and round and round. Maybe you have too. I remember in grad school at Notre Dame, I had to write like a 30-page paper on Exodus 4 Exodus 4, Moses is on his way back to Egypt to liberate the Israelites, and he's just doing the thing that God told him to do, and out of nowhere, this angel comes down and tries to kill Moses, and then there are more details that I won't discuss because there are some kids in the room, and it's a little gruesome and anatomical, if you will. So I write like 20 or 30 pages on the history of interpretation of this bizarre little text, and I thought, 
The reason I chose it is because this is a difficult text. It's one of those texts where you're like, what on earth is God doing with this? Why is this story in this sacred text that we've been given? And I thought, surely like a summer in the library at Notre Dame with professors and writing a paper, and I'm going to figure this one out. And I didn't get anywhere. <laughs> like I got the paper written, but I didn't get any closer on that one to why this story in this book, right? So I've had lots of feelings about this book, and sometimes we like to do a little open table and I wonder if anybody wants to be brave today. I want to know, like, just what comes to mind when you hear the word Bible or you see somebody open up a Bible or you come into a church and we have the Bible on screen or a preacher says we're going to study the Bible. The good, the bad, the ugly. I want to hear. What, what comes to mind? Anybody want to be brave? What comes to mind when you hear the word Bible? Just kind of holler it out. Faith. Transformation. Transformation. A couple over here, sorry. Relationship, thank you. Is there another one over here? Old. Confusing. Balance. A little cynical. Obedience. Not a textbook. Judgmental. Symbolic. Misuse. I'm going to stop there because that helps me. I'm going to go with that, okay? Yeah. Yeah, so here's what I want to propose because we've had all these experiences. And in the room today, I know that we have people who love this book, who, who believe it, believe it's uniquely the gift that God has given us to know God and to know Christ. I know we have others in the room that um, maybe like think this is just this very human text and maybe it's worse than neutral. Maybe it's negative in the world. We probably got everything in between. But um, I think there's, there's a word for what we need to do with this book. And this comes from a conversation I was having with friends who were in our church, and they were talking about faith in general. They said, we kind of feel like we need a faith rehab. And I kind of think we might need a Bible rehab. So that's where we're going for the next few weeks. We're going to do a little series called Bible Rehab. Uh, because um, for some, this book needs rehabilitated. Maybe this book has been misused and abused, and, and, and it just seems like this needs like fresh life. Or maybe your relationship to this book needs rehabilitated somehow, perhaps, right? Maybe you felt it, and in fact, like, you're aching for a new way of thinking about this book. Or maybe, maybe I need to challenge you a little bit, and maybe the way that you relate to this book, it feels like it's working for you, but maybe what you're going to hear over the next few weeks is maybe that needs to be poked around a little bit. Maybe we need to consider that again. So we're going to do a series called Bible Rehab the next four weeks, and I'm so excited, you guys. This is one of those things that when we like, started the church, we were like, sometime we're going to do this, and here we are. Now, um, to get this going, I want to take you to the year 4017. It's a sci-fi journey to the future, 2,000 years from now. The year is 4017. And in the year 4017, I want you to imagine that there is this massive movement of people who value thievery. It's vaunted as a virtue. It's good to be a thief. Now, the reason they value thievery is because they have a sacred text. And though in their case, it's a combination of artwork and text and music. And the sacred text is this. It's Radiohead's album, and it's called uh, Hail to the Thief. <laughs> yeah, this one. Any Radiohead fans in the room? A couple. We're not going to pray for you because I think that's great. Um, <laughs> So this is 2,000 years from now, and a whole movement of people have landed on this text-slash-work-of-art-slash-musical experience by a band that they have hailed, and the, and, and the album is called Hail to the Thief, and the plain text meaning of this is very clear. Hail meaning lift up, praise, affirm, 
like love on, it's good to be, right? Hail to the thief. And so they take this text, and in the plain text meaning of it, they apply it in their lives. And so they have little schools of thievery where they teach you how to be a thief, and they, they vaunt thievery, and they gather together in a circle quite like this, whatever the sci-fi version 2,000 years from now is, and they tell stories about their successful exploits of thievery, and then they turn to the text and they remind one another it's good to be a thief. Well, of course, there's all kinds of problems with this, Right? Like, for example, these people may not know that this is a, a sarcastic play on a political moment happening in America in the year 2003. Now, I'm not here to get into the politics or pick a side, but from Radiohead's particular perspective, they created a work of art to push against something that was happening in the world. The thief they're in reference to is President Bush. Again, I'm not trying to like, take a side here. This is just what they are saying with their message. And this is... Um, when the election happens, when some people are accusing the Republicans of stealing the election from the Democrats because there were ballot issues in Florida, right? And hail to the chief, of course, is, is a way of talking about the president in the United States, right? The Marine Corps has a band that plays that song when the chief is there. And when we say hail to the chief, we're talking about the president. So they take this line, hail to the chief, that everybody knows, refers to the president, and, and they twist it to say something prophetic or protesting or annoying, depending on where you're coming from your political views, to say hail to the thief, to make a, a political statement about what they think is wrong in the world. Now, in the year 4017, 2,000 years from now, see, some people start doing some digging. They study the work around the text, and they stand up and they say, guys, 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 we got this all wrong. This wasn't telling us to praise the thief. This was sarcastically telling us it's bad to be the thief. And then other people fought with them, and they said, no, 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 can't you just read the words on the page? Don't try to wiggle your way out of this one. Don't try to bring your fancy science to this thing. Like, we know what it says. It says, hail to the thief, and so we will keep praising the thieves, and it is just a massive adventure in missing the point. The place I want to start today is to say that you cannot do any good with this book without a little bit of context. All over this book, context really really matters. Our last season as a church, we were in the book of Genesis, and there was another nation state that we kept pointing to from the ancient world. We kept referring to it. It was the Babylonians, because so much of what is happening in the book of Genesis is coming from the Israelites' experience in exile with the Babylonians, who have other ideas about what the gods are like or what it means to be human or how the world is supposed to fit together. And so the Israelites, they're taking all of these like literary forms and stories and ideas and they're reshaping them so that what is revealed, what God, what God gives us in the text is, is a profound word about how to be human and what it means to be alive in the world and what God is like, but it's easier to hear it if you know some of the context around it. This book is so deeply embedded in the world that it comes from. It is so deeply rooted in the lives of the people who wrote these stories, in, in the world that surrounds them, in the roads that they walked, in the political moments that they inhabited. Context really, really matters. And so for the last uh, quite a while, we've been reading Genesis, and one of the things we've been trying to do is read it in context. Like, this really matters if we're going to hear it. Can I push a little further with you? Everybody okay? You, okay, let me push a little further. I'm just going to say this. Like, Without context, it's easy to read Genesis 1 and think, oh, thank God that 3,000 years ago, the Lord gave to Moses a text so that we could defeat Darwin in the 1800s. 
And I'm just saying, like, if you read it in context, it becomes a little more clear that maybe this text isn't pushing against modern science. Maybe this text is pushing against a world that said that only kings are made in the image of God and everybody else is trash. And then this text says, no, every man and woman made in the image of God. Like, if we read in context, we hear a world that says there are divvied up little parts of the world that are holy and that belong to different gods, and so there are sacred places and secular places. There are places where you are close to God and places where you are far from God. And if we read in context, we hear Genesis saying, no, the whole thing is a temple. You've never walked on one inch of ground in this world that wasn't saturated with God, where God's waiting to meet you and love you. You've never gone so far away that God couldn't be with you. That's what comes out of this text in context. And, it, and it's really tragic when we miss these deep and profound messages because we don't understand the world around these pages, right? How about this one? It's the year 4017, and a little closer to home, there is a resurgence of the Amish movement, okay? Um, and and, and these, these new Amish, they call them, in the year 4017, they're trying to go back to the texts that have emerged from the Amish movement to make sure they get the Amish movement right. And it's curious, because in the year 4017, everybody's living in apartment space pods. But the Amish of 4017, in reading, they discovered, oh no guys, the Amish, they lived in houses. So we must live in houses. Now, of course, like we're all sitting here, some of us know Amish people. We drive down the streets and see the horses in Elkhart. We have neighbors who are Amish. Some people in our community came from Amish lines and their families. And anybody who knows anything about the Amish knows that living in a house is not the distinctive that makes an Amish person Amish, right? There are other distinctives. And you have to know the world around the Amish of the year 2017, a world of technology and electricity, a world of computers and automobiles. If you know the world around the world of the Amish, then you can read into the pages of the Amish history what is so distinct and important and essential to being Amish, right? Well, like in, in, in our Bibles, we have in the Old Testament lots of law. We have commands about sacrifices and, and rituals and temples. And it's easy to read that and not be sure what to do with it. Because, see, if, if you read like Exodus and Leviticus with all the do's and the do nots and the kill the animal this way in the altar and do that sort of thing, it can be really confusing. You're in the high weeds and you don't know what to do. But if you read around it a little bit, if you discover that in the ancient world, humans always assumed that sacrifices were required. Like every culture back then assumed that sacrifices are required. This is not a unique insight for the Israelites that we need to do those kinds of sacrifices. What's unique is that every other culture in that time and place believed in gods who said, I care what you do when you come to the temple, but in your everyday life, you're on your own. And every other sort of command that comes from God to these ancient peoples, the gods care a lot about what you do to make them happy, to appease them through sacrifices, but you'll never hear another god in that time and place speak to the people and say, honor your father and your mother. You'll never hear another god from that time and place speak to their people and say that, that you must treat one another with the kind of honor that you would also show to God. You'll, you'll never discover that murder is something that God cares about or that lying is something that God cares about. That's the unique revelation here. That's the thing that God is revealing. He's saying, I care about what you do. I care about who you become. And whether you grow in virtue or not, I care about who you become. That's the word that we hear if we listen a little bit to the story around the story in the Bible. Um, 
Let me take you to one more example and let's just see if I can just kind of keep making my case. And then we're going to talk about what to do with this for a bit. So the book of Isaiah is an Old Testament book of the Bible. It's a text written, uh, the prophet Isaiah is uh, one who speaks on behalf of God. Uh, Side note, often we think that the biblical prophet's first job is to tell the future. That's almost never their job. Their job is always to tell the truth. The prophet's job is to tell the difficult truth, the hard truth. When you're rebellious, when you're pushing back, the prophet's job is, is to kind of break you open so you can grow tender before God again, right? When you're wounded and, and dejected, when you have no hope or faith left, the prophet's job is to say, no, 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 there's a future for you. There is more in front of you because God is that good and he hasn't given up. That's the kind of work that the prophet does. And now we're in the book of Isaiah. I'm going to take it to chapter 40 in a second here. And so Isaiah is a prophet who's telling the Israelite people, he's saying, I I need you to know that the way that you've been relating to God and to the world around you, it doesn't work. And and I've warned you, and I've warned you, and I've warned you, and eventually this is not going to go well for you. So there's an exile coming around the corner where your national identity is going to be broken. You're going to be dragged away in slavery to a faraway place that you do not want to go to. And everything that you know about what it means to be Israelite will be stripped away and you'll have nothing left. That's the warning of Isaiah. And we read that over and over again in chapters 1 through 39. Now, the consensus of modern scholarship is that chapters 1 through 39 are written before the exile. Warning. But this is one of those places where scholarship's really good. And one of my passions would be that, like, the church would benefit from the really good work that's happening in the academy. You don't have to be a nerd or go to school because, like, we should share that with one another in a space like this, right? Um, But the modern consensus is that Isaiah 40 is the the first pages of what was written not before the exile, but in exile. This is after the punishment has happened and you've been dragged away. Now, I remember sitting in grad school, and this is one of those moments where I'm wrestling with what to do with this book. Like, what, what is this book? What do I do with this thing, right? And I remember sitting in grad school, and I remember my professor describing to me what was in front of the Israelites. So you've been embarrassed in front of all of the nations. You've been defeated militarily. It's like, like you're on the playground, and you tried to show your stuff, and then the bigger guy just, just like ate your lunch, and everybody watched. And now your pride has suffered, your identity has suffered, you've been dragged away, and you've been enslaved for a very long time. Now here's the thing, there's a promise that you're going to get to return to your homeland, but between you and your homeland is a 900-mile walk by foot. 900-mile walk by foot. And by the way, when you get home, home isn't home anymore because when we were dragged into exile, it was demolished. They destroyed it. We are going back to a ruin. And the thing that just hit me is this is me and everyone I know who's gone into exile and looked at the long walk home. This is everyone I know who, through one bad decision after another, little by little, has found themselves far away from where they are supposed to be. And you have a wake-up moment where you say, I don't want to be out here in the exile anymore. I want to go home. I want to come home. And what you see in front of you is a 900-mile walk by foot back to a desecrated place that you're not sure that you can rebuild. I thought of people I love who've had their own version of this story where they have walked one step at a time to a very difficult and dark place and they finally want to come home. But the walk home is so difficult. The walk home, it, it, it threatens you that you won't make it all the way there. The walk home says you don't have the strength for it, you don't have the energy for it. The walk home says that when you get home, it won't be anything that you can live in anymore, so you've just ruined for good. 
And I thought of all of that, and then I read this, and this is a passage that I have read over and over again. You might recognize it because it's like a Christian's favorite. It's like one of, the, one, of the, one of the best hits from the Bible, you know? <laughs> Bear all that in mind and listen to what Isaiah says. Comfort my, com- comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and that her sin has been paid for. I'm going to skip down here a little bit. Uh, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. I'm gonna read a little more, but first, do you hear what they're, it's like, look, look, I know you feel forgotten, and I know you feel like you cannot make this happen on your own, but God has not forgotten anything or anyone, and he has the strength for this. Right? And then we read this. Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not be faint. And can't you just hear God saying, look, I know that you are a long way from home. And I know that you're afraid you don't have what it takes to get back. But that's okay, because you're not alone trying to get back. You're not forgotten trying to get back. And I share this with you, not just because it's powerful, but because for me, this is a moment where, like, context really mattered. This text spoke to me because of the world around this text and what was happening for these people. I mean, I, I think this text finds its life and its energy for us again when we learn a little bit around, about the world around it. Um, and this is important because a lot of uh, misuse, a lot of malpractice can happen when we don't understand a little bit around, about, about the world around this text. So, for example, if you ever hear the book of Revelation preached and you don't get some sign that the preacher has done some work to understand what it meant for the time and place in which it was written, then be a little suspicious when they start telling you what it means for the time and place that we're in right now. Make sense? Let me say that again. Revelation or any other book of the Bible, especially the hairy ones, right? The, The poetic ones, the bizarre ones. If you're hearing a teacher or anybody else tell you what it means, but they they don't indicate that they've done any work to understand what it meant for the time and place in which it was written, be a little suspicious when they tell you what it means for the time and place we're in right now. Make sense? Now, I know this probably raises a few questions, and I've heard this um, even when we were working through Genesis a little bit. One of the questions I've heard is like, but are you saying we all have to go get PhDs to read this book? Like, I know most of us myself included, on a busy day, it's a really good day if I can carve out 15 minutes to pray through the Psalms for a moment. I don't have three hours to read commentaries on ancient Near Eastern rituals sociologically interpreted vis-a-vis the text, right? I get that. I really get that. A couple things I want to say. First of all, I'm not suggesting this text does no good on its own. This is me just trying to move the ball and open up the conversation a little bit and add something to it. But you better believe that I believe and that this community believes that this text is for you and for me every day. And we have this promise that we're not on our own when we read it. We have this promise of God's Spirit who meets us 
as we read it. And I am absolutely 110% in favor of the incredible things that happen when we read this book on our own. Good, that's important to say. But secondly, um, you and I for about 500 years have been a part of a movement in the church we call it like the Protestant Reformation. And, and one, of the, one of the really liberating things that happened in the Reformation was we remembered that this book is for everyone. And that's really good. Because there had developed a situation where it was like this book was only for the skilled interpreters and you never got it firsthand. And that's a problem, right? But it's possible the pendulum has swung so far that now we live in a world where we're like, I don't need anyone or anything, I got this. And I don't believe that about anything in the Christian life. That you don't need anyone or anything, you got this on your own. We don't believe that about any part of the Christian life. We don't believe that about how we worship together. We don't believe that about how we grow together. The fact is we need each other. I need people who aren't white men to help me understand what this text feels like, sounds like, when it's read through your life experience. Uh, I need people who uh, are women to tell me what it's like to read this book because I think it's very different experience reading parts of this book as a woman. I need minorities, people of color, to tell me what it's like reading this book because I think it's a different experience for them. And we might from time to time need educated people who did go to school and learn how to read this book to help the church. This is how we help each other, right? And so like, that's actually a pretty high value for us that this is why I went to school. This is why Ryan went to school. This is why we'll bring in other smart voices that help us do the academic work because context really matters here, and it helps to have the tools in hand, which is why it's really good to be in a community. Um, this raises other questions about interpretation. So let's go back to uh, the hail to the thief idea for a second. So you have this movement who believes they understand this text in a certain way, and then some new data shows up. They discover that there's a context around that text that begins to change how they're thinking about what's written there, right? Well, then it raises lots of questions like, what do we do with this then? What does it mean when you take text and add to it context and you start to wrestle with the results? And I would just say that you're talking now about interpretation. We all do it, and interpretation is better done in community too. It's great to sit quietly at your study and ask yourself, what does this text mean for the world? But it's really good to sit in a community and wrestle with that question. And that's part of what we want to do. We have the gift of each other, grappling together, wrestling with each other, drinking coffee after church, talking about it, sitting in each other's homes, wrestling with this text. We even have the gift of the community of the church that goes back for 2,000 years and, and, and the Jewish tradition even beyond that. We're not just in a community with people who are alive today. We're in a community with people who are dead but who have left us their witness, their testimony, their ideas, their understandings, their insights, and we can bring all of that to bear as we interpret together. Now, another question I've asked as I've thought about context and interpretation, why do we have to have such a hard book? You ever felt that? Why, why, why this? If God wanted to speak, like all the debates that are raging today, there's a lot of debates where religion and ethics and science and the modern world are all sort of crashing together. And I don't know about you, but I've had so many times where I'm like, could we have had a better book, please? Right? <laughs> Or could you update the thing? I don't know, like, have you felt? I felt like, I felt that wrestling match sometime. But the more I wrestle with that and the more I press into it, the more I think to ask God for a different book is to ask God for a different God. Let me explain a little more what I mean. First, a story, and I'll see if I can, we'll see how this goes. I'm going to try to talk about my dog who just died. We'll see how this goes. 
Yeah, thanks. Um, so uh, let me show you my, my pup, Jack. So that's Jackie boy. And uh, Jackie and I had 12 good years together. And uh, a few weeks ago, uh, it was finally time. He got diagnosed with cancer when, uh, around Christmas. And the vet told me we might make it a few weeks. And then we made it to February, and he said, you're not going to make it past April. But in fact, uh, there we were uh, just a couple of weeks ago, still sort of hanging on. But it became clear that the time was here. So this was um, the last Tuesday that our church was at Century Center. I think if I have that date right. And I had been here in the factory all day. And this place was so full of hope and forward-looking excitement. I mean, I'd walk in here, and Dan was here, and Jeff Weldy was here, and our sound designers were here, and we were just we were working on all of it. And I would just feel so hopeful and excited. And then for the last few weeks, I'd get home, and I'd see my pup, and I'd know we're getting close, and it would just, like, drag me down, you know? I mean, like, best friend doesn't even begin to describe the connection and the love that uh, I've had for that pup for 12 years. And I remember, so it's a Tuesday afternoon, I'm here in the factory all day, and then I got to go home, get all the Studebaker dust off of me, take a shower to get rid of the sweat, and then run over to Century Center to preach the service. In the meantime, I got to call my vet and tell him that tomorrow I got to come in and say goodbye to my dog. So on the way home, I call the vet, make the appointment, try to hold it together, get in the shower, and I'm just like, I'm in this like washed, like weird, like vertigo place where like, I don't know, up from down and left from right, and I can't reconcile the fact that I'm more excited than ever about what I get to be a part of, and I'm sadder than I might have ever been in my entire adult life about what I'm about to have to do. And this clarity breaks in that I hadn't even thought about before. Uh, Jack came into my life 12 years ago. I was just wrapping up college, and I'd had this really intense struggle with depression in college. It was really, really bad. It had taken me in and out of therapy and in and out of therapy, and I've talked with you guys some about this before. But uh, my, as I was wrapping up college, it, it got so bad that it was completely debilitating. I couldn't make it through a day. I couldn't make it through a class. I couldn't even drive my freaking car because I would start crying so hard that I couldn't see the road in front of me. And eventually it got bad enough that I just checked myself into a hospital for about 10 days. And the really good and beautiful thing that happened is that there was a grieving process that finally just kind of came through my body and I just sobbed for a few days. And then a lot, in a lot of ways, the, the clouds parted. I come out of the hospital, and a week after I come out of the hospital, I get offered a full-time job at the church that I just spent the last 13 years at. And can I be honest with you guys? I'm scared out of my mind. Because when mental health is taking you out, there's always the fear that it could do it again. And like, like, what do you do with this bizarre equation that combines like emotions and brain chemistry, and doctors never quite know what to do with this stuff, what do you do with, like, the fact that it completely took you out? I mean, I don't mean it gave me a hard day. I mean it made my days impossible. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't make life work. And I was glad to be out of the hospital, and I was glad to feel better, but I was really quite convinced that I wouldn't make it, period. And then it was right around then that my parents told me, and I think they were clairvoyant about what I needed, and they said, hey, we, we're going to get you a pup for Christmas. How's that sound? And we'd always grown up with Golden Retriever, and... I just, I always knew that a golden retriever would be part of my life at some point. And uh, so that was Christmas that year, and then Jack comes into my life. He comes into my life about that big, you know, a little puppy. I'll never forget, I get him home, and I pull him out of the cardboard box that I drove him home with, and I put him on the floor of my room, and he just runs right in there and just hides inside. And I pull him out, he just runs right in. And 12 years later, the week that we had to say goodbye, that head now is bigger than his whole body was. And to, that, to the very end, he would still like, try to like, just hide in there, and I'd kind of push him out. Um, 
So Jack comes into my life at a period of immense vulnerability where I'm not sure that I can make it like at all in my future. The next few years are, are mostly pretty great, although there are some aftershocks of depression, which if you've ever had mental health issues like that, you might relate to this. Um, mostly great, but every once in a while, it's like a switch would flip, and all of a sudden, I'm done again. I can't, I can't leave my house. I can't do anything. And it's really hard to describe if you've never had that experience. It's not a matter of will. It's not a matter of attitude. You just can't do it. And I remember one of these days, uh, this happens, I had plans to go see Dave Matthews' band with some friends of mine down in Indianapolis, and this wave just hits. And I remember sitting on my couch in my living room, and I pick up the phone, and I call one of the friends, and I make up an excuse. I lie about why I can't go to see Dave Matthews, because I don't want to say that I'm having a bad mental health day. <laughs> I remember I hang up the phone, and I just start sobbing. Because what, what I'm hearing inside is, see? This is what you're stuck with. You're not going to make it, you know? And I remember my dog, he's at the other end of the room, and he, um, he jumps up, and he, he pounces on me on the couch. At this point, he's 95 pounds, and, and he just won't stop licking my face. He just won't stop licking my face. And he, like, has me pinned on the couch, and I literally, like, almost can't physically get him off of me, and he just won't stop licking my face. And pretty soon, crying turns to laughing, and it's like he interrupted that cycle that was about to just tear her down to a really, really, really scary place. And he just, like, grabbed me and shook me out of it, you know? And I could tell lots of other stories about all the ways that he helped me. But here it is a couple weeks ago, and I'm trying to make sense of about, I'm about to say goodbye to him, and this is so hopeful and exciting. And this thought just strikes me, which is um, South Bend City Church and the space here at Studebaker and what we are becoming together in so many ways. For me, this has been um, the result of 12 years of healing and coming to a place where I believe I can stand on my own two feet. Where, like, I believe I, I can make it somehow, you know? Not like make something big, but just make it, period, Right? And in so many ways, even though the building is not our church, right, but in so many ways having the space and working on it was this really physical thing I could get my hands on. I said, here we are. We haven't arrived, we've only begun, and yet here we are, you know? And it just hit me like Jack did his job all the way, you know? So I went downstairs. This is all going to come back to the Bible, I promise. <laughs> this isn't just therapy for Jay, okay? Um, <laughs> it might be therapy for Jay, but it's not just therapy for Jay. So I go downstairs and I tell Jack, I say, buddy, you really did your job. And we cuddled all night and the next day and then we said goodbye. And then um, I knew I needed to grieve and so I started writing that same story that I just told you. And what hit me over and over again, I'm still working on it and maybe I'll throw it in my blog someday soon. But every sentence I'm writing, it's about a dog named Jack who's a golden retriever with way too much slobber and way too much hair it's about um, picking him up in Rochester, Indiana at a great breeder and driving him home in a cardboard box at a moment in my life where mental health was an issue. It's about my bedroom on the second floor of my parents' house when I first got to know this pub. It's about moving in with him into my house in River Park. It's about the 33 friends that have lived with him over the past 12 years. There are names and faces and places. There's a smell my dog had that my house still has and I can still smell it. And it's all there and I'm writing all of this granular detail. This is so deeply, incredibly rooted in in flesh and place and experience in the year 2017 for me. And as I'm writing that, I'm realizing every sentence is a witness to how good God has been to me. Like every sentence is witness. Every sentence, to use an old word, is doxology. It's to say, praise God from whom all good things flow. And for 12 years, all of that goodness, it didn't show up in like theological statements. 
It showed up in a dog that smelled and licked and ran around in the backyard with me. It showed up in flesh and blood. And I'm saying the reason the Bible is like this is because we have a God like this who keeps showing up in flesh and blood. This isn't an abstract God who wants to sit on the clouds and dictate to us things that never get embedded in culture and place. In fact, this is a God who's always waiting for us in the daily grind. He's not waiting for you abstractly. He's waiting for you in South Bend in your home. He's not waiting for you abstractly. He's waiting for you tomorrow when you wake up on a Monday and you can't handle another Monday and you hit snooze one more time and then you're late to get the kids to school and all the while he's waiting for you, not in spite of those details, but right there in those details. This is a God who wants to meet us in flesh and blood in the world, which by the way would explain why even more than the Bible reveals God, Jesus reveals God and Jesus is God wrapped up in flesh and blood. He's not some abstract idea. God shows up as a man who walks walks on dusty roads 2,000 years ago, who speaks Aramaic, who eats the food of his time and place. This is the kind of God we have, and that's why it's the kind of book we have. And I know that it might be a little harder sometimes, but I would take a God who's waiting for us in the everyday details way more than a God who floats above the clouds, abstract and far away. And I think this book, more than anything, it's, it's calling us to a God who's waiting for us in the details. He's waiting for you in your rut, your routine. He's waiting for you in the people around you that you might have grown tired of or annoyed with. He's he's waiting for us in the details of our life. And so he gave us a book that emerges from the details of a world. It's quirky. It's intense. It is full of strange details that I don't always understand. But I hope that when you look back on your experience of God in life, you'll discover that there too he was in the quirky, strange details. He was in the peculiarity of you and your family and your friends. I hope that when you look back on the experience of God, it's not some generic or abstract thing. I hope you think of your brothers and sisters in South Bend City Church, that we walked together and experienced God together. He's not waiting for you in the abstract details or in the abstract things. He's waiting for you in the details. That's the kind of God we have And that's the kind of book we have. And I think this is the only kind of book that could call us to find God in our lives. So over the next few weeks, we're going to talk more. We're going to talk about this as a communal book. We're going to talk about this as a a woven text that holds things in tension. And most importantly, we're going to talk about a book that points us to Jesus. That Jesus sort of towers over the pages of Scripture. That Jesus interprets the Scriptures. And that Jesus is the way that we most fully and richly know God. Um, There's a thing I want to tell you, but I just realized I'm not 100% sure it's true. Amanda, I'm sorry. Do we have Bibles today? No. Well, we're soon, sorry, uh, as we've moved from uh, paper to screen, we're working on getting a stack of Bibles here that we can um, just, we want you to know that if you ever want to have a Bible, we just want to give you a Bible. So next week, so you got to come back, right? Um, But uh, we're very, very committed to this book. Um, I I would think if you've been with us for a season, you know how much we love this book. We like to soak deeply in the pages of this book. We want to hear this book. But we're also committed to a place that doesn't have like um, a white-knuckled grip on it, right? Like we want to create space for questions, doubt. I badly want you to know that if you're a person who doesn't like this book or doesn't believe this book, you are so welcome here and we're not going to beat you over the head with it 
But together we want to hear this text and let, us draw, let, let it draw us toward a God who's waiting for us in the detail. Grace and peace upon grace and peace, waiting for you in the details. Um, let's do this. We stand if you're able, and I'll just wrap us up with a benediction. If you have hated this book, may you give it a, a fresh look in these next few weeks. And may you find a community that's not threatened at all, if that's how you feel right now. If you've loved this book, may you find it opening itself up to you in all new ways and making you alive in ways you hadn't imagined before. If you have wrestled with this book, may you know that you are not alone. We all have to, and we will keep wrestling together. And as you and I hear the, the words from this book, may we hear again and again how they point to Jesus, who is showering us with grace and peace in every detail of our lives. Grace and peace be with you. Love you, friends. Uh, see you very soon.